Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the technology is called ShotSpotter, and it can detect where a gunshot originates from in real time. Now, the Atlanta Police Department will give this a test, but first, we wanted to know what other police departments were already using ShotSpotter, so we called up the Savannah Police Department. People need to understand it's part of a multifaceted approach to uh, reducing gun violence. That conversation in just a moment and many more on today's program. But first, from our WABE newsroom, as Georgia lags behind much of the country and its share of residents fully vaccinated, local governments here are trying new initiatives to get people inoculated. That includes an event later today in Cobb County. Tonight at the Jim Miller Event Center, Cobb County Chairwoman Lisa Cupid and Cobb and Douglas Public Health officials will host a town hall meeting to answer questions. Now, also at the event, the Pfizer vaccine will be available for anyone 12 years of age and older, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for those 18 years and older. And those looking to get their first vaccine shot and attend the town hall can sign up online with CORE, the Community Organized Relief Effort, that's also an event organizer. And finally, it's game two tonight for the Atlanta Hawks and the New York Knicks in the first round of the NBA playoffs taking place in Madison Square Garden. The Hawks are up one game to none. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Atlanta Police Department will test a new technology that can detect where a gunshot originates from in real time. That technology is called ShotSpotter. Now, according to a press release from APD, ShotSpotter alerts police within 60 seconds of when a shot is fired, pinpointing the number of shots and location of the gun use. But just how accurate is this technology and can it really help reduce criminal activity? The Savannah Police Department uses it. And joining me now is Captain David Gay. Captain, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Captain, you've been in law enforcement for nearly three decades, correct? Yes, ma'am. And Captain, when you think back to when you first started your first year, your rookie year, to now, how instrumental has technology been in enhancing or improving in what you all do within law enforcement? That's a really interesting question. I remember when I started, email um, still had was not really prevalent. Um, uh, we were probably still using pagers, if I recall correctly. Um, but to answer more to the point of answering your question, technology is huge. Um, there's been a number of uh, advantages from you know business processes such as email and other pr- uh, processes to ShotSpot or uh, other analytics um, that uh, we're able to leverage to help us uh, be more effective and efficient. When you think about gun violence, not just in Savannah or even in Atlanta or Georgia, but gun violence in this nation, and people talk about how do we reduce that particular criminal element, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all for, for different areas. I'm curious, through your lens, how do you see that? I'm just saying I want to focus on gun violence for a moment, dear. Um, that's a great question, and you're right. You're going to have 
you're going to have no shortages of ideas in this country in terms of how you attack gun violence. And I think any, especially a mid-sized or larger city, tends to have uh, bigger challenges in terms of trying to identify the issues and make sure that they, uh, they're getting the attention they deserve. There's so many guns out there. Uh, and, I th- and you're seeing also right now a spike in violent crime um, throughout the country. We're fortunate in Savannah right now. We have, we're down a little bit on our homicides. Our nine, non-fatal shootings are up a little bit. Um, but that's not uncommon uh, for cities our size and, and larger. Um, and there's been a lot of talk um, internally and amongst other agencies about some of these factors, right? From COVID, um, possibly you know, placing additional strain on people, easy access to firearms. Um, conflict is huge right now. Uh, it seems like over the last year, we've seen a spike, especially when people um, have conflict um, and they have easy access to farms, especially perhaps if they shouldn't have a farm to begin with. Um, that can lend itself to, uh, to, uh, to gunplay uh, and somebody being shot. Um, that's really, that's a really, it's a great question, but I think it's, it's some, something that I think a lot of police departments across, and not just police departments, but communities mm-hmm. and cities. Because um, at the end of the day, um, it's not just about what the police department can do. It's about what the community as a whole can do working together to try to um, reduce that, reduce getting, putting guns in people's hands who shouldn't have it. And then also, you know, from a young age, trying to get um, children, especially children who live in some of the marginalized areas, getting them the help and the assistance they can um, to reduce the chances of them um, becoming victims of crime themselves. And before we dig into shot spotter, you see technology being able to help not only track but reduce gun violence. What I like to say about shot spotter is that a lot of people, when they hear about shot spotter, are looking for a direct correlation between shot spotter and specific incidents. And we do have some cases of that where officers arrive directly uh, on scene in a short time span because of a notification, they were able to take some kind of action that led to the recovery of a firearm or, or an arrest. We've also had uh, cases where it can help us because somebody will claim that, a, they, that they were a victim of gunfire in an area that's in the coverage area and there's no shot spotter alert. So that can help investigators in that way. But more importantly, what I think people need to understand, it's part of a multifaceted approach to uh, reducing gun violence and or I, I also, it's also a great investigatory tool as well. So it's, you know, if you're to draw a circle of all the different strategies and tactics that we employ as an agency to try to combat gun violence. Some of those are traditional. Some of that stuff hasn't changed since I've been on the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, that's face-to-face interaction with the public, right? That's um, conceptually three things solve crime, witnesses, evidence, and confessions. Um, and uh, shot spotter is just one of many, among many tools um, that, we, that we use in an effort to, to try to attack that. So it could put officers on scene very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also uh, can lead to an additional recovery of evidence. It might point towards witnesses, right? They can tell us some information might give us a suspect description or a vehicle description. It might even point us towards a path that we can go back and take a look at for additional evidence, video, mm-hmm. um, you know, the list of potential um, pieces of evidence um, kind of just goes on and on. The voice you hear is Captain David Gay with the Savannah Police Department, and we're talking about the technology known as Shot Spotter. Here in Atlanta, APD is going to give a pilot test to this technology. This is the second time APD will be testing Shot Spotter. We wanted to check in with another police department that's already using the technology that can detect the origin of a gunshot in real time. And how long have y'all been using Shot Spotter down in Savannah? I believe we went live it was in January of 2015. You just mentioned a, a list of, of areas where it's been helpful. Is there something that some concerns you all have that you still have with Shot Spotter that you haven't been able to either work out with the manufacturer, or is there any concerns you have with Shot Spotter? I think um, we've got a, a good relationship with ShotSpotter. Um, they're responsive to our concerns. We're not shy about sharing them uh, when they occur. Um, we have to remember that this is a system, you know, built by humans. It's not infallible. Occasionally, we'll, uh, is- small issues will arise. When we do, we bring it to their attention and give them an opportunity to uh, to address it. Captain Gay, can you give an example 
uh, one of those issues that were concerning to you? Um, so, uh, I, it's, I, I would like to, but I guess I, I have to be cognizant of, I guess, of how the system works. Um, I, I guess I can say this, um, understanding that there's a specific coverage area for Shaw Spotter, right? Mm-hmm. So the city of Savannah right now enjoys six square miles of coverage. Um, the um, the Shaw Spotter system itself will provide information outside of that coverage area. Um, and However, it's going to be at a reduced uh, reliability, I guess, is the best way, best way to say it. So let's walk our listeners through this. There are some shots that are fired. The technology picks it up. It's almost—is it honing in on it, almost it, like a GPS, and then it sends you all, almost like a location. Right. So what'll happen is the way the system works is uh, when gunfire occurs, the system recognizes it. Um, it then notifies the officers. It also notifies the dispatch center simultaneously. So in one hand, one of the advantages it it preempts the traditional dispatching process, right? So something happens, you call 911, the dispatcher enters it in a computer, an officer is dispatched to the call. Um, and um, what this does, this puts the information right in the, um, in the hands of the police officer um, so that they can actually, they'll have that information and they can immediately take action or respond. We've even had some instances where officers heard the gunfire, but if you can imagine, if you're in a neighborhood and you hear a gunfire, you'll have a general direction you know, unless it's right down the street, you may not have a good understanding of the proximity or where on the street that gunfire may be taking place. And the same can even occur when it comes to people calling in gunfire, right? I think ShotSpotter says that only 10 or 20% of the time when people hear gunfire, do they report it to the police? Mm-hmm. Um, and when they do call, unless the gunfire is occurring in front of their house, they may not know, right? So there's, we might get two or three calls on gunfire. Um, and so then you're sending your officers to multiple locations. So ShotSpotter gives you a, a, a more clear picture in terms of where the officers need to be, need, need to be responding and um, looking for evidence. How long did you all pilot the program before agreeing to go ahead and, and use the, the technology? I really wasn't involved in the early stages of the mm-hmm. system. I became involved later. Um, I think that uh, our relationship has been uh, fairly positive. So because it's working, I don't know if we ever piloted. I think it was, it was, it came online. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to um, get the right policies and the procedures in place to make sure that officers are, are you know, using it in the way, in the manner they're supposed to. Um, so one thing that ShotSpotter did, uh, I know looking back at some of the data is it did increase the number of pieces of evidence that we're recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that um, agencies need to be cognizant of and that's a good thing. You're collecting more pieces of evidence, but there's also a cost in terms of uh, staff time to accomplish that. Right? Um, it's now additional work that has to be take that has to be taken place, um, uh, logging that stuff into the property room. And from an infrastructure standpoint, did you all have to invest in any other type of technology to accommodate using ShotSpotter with your system? No, I don't believe we already were using MDTs. Those are the, the ruggedized computers and cars. Um, uh, so the officers have that. They can also get alerts on their cell phones. I don't believe that there were any, um, any hardware requirements. And Captain Gay, is Shot Spotter able to differentiate between a vehicle backfiring, fireworks, you know, 4th of July is coming up. Is it able to, to make that distinction between those two other types of sounds? So they do have a process in place to try to uh, uh, eliminate or reduce the number of false positives. Mm-hmm. Um, as with any system, there is a process in place. So if officers write a call and they determine, hey, this was a vehicle backfire, this was fireworks. Captain Gay, if you were to give a recommendation or an assessment, whether it's to the Atlanta Police Department or any other law enforcement agency about using shot spotter I think ultimately it's an individual. I mean, obviously the agency, you know, in the city needs to make that call and, you know, make that decision whether or not they see value in the system. And I think the biggest thing is talk to other agencies of comparable size. Um, obviously Atlanta is much larger than us. And while there's going to be some similarities, I'm sure there's a lot of differences as well. Um, so I would encourage them to talk to, and I'm sure they've done, they, they have done this or, and or going to do this, reach out to cities um, and Hey, and ask them, you know, how does the system work for you? What, what processes do you have in place? What is the cost? Uh, what, is, what are their benefits? 
Um, and that I think would help them um, in their judgment and how they, they need to handle it or make, the, make their decision. And finally, Captain Gay, what feedback have you, have you all heard from the officers? What have they said about ShotSpotter? I think for the most part, um, they appreciate it. Um, I know when I was a young officer on the street, you know, this technology wasn't available. It would have been nice to be able to put, put me on the site, you know, sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we've been working on uh, in the criminal investigations division is I call it compressing the investigative cycle. So you have to remember when a violent crime occurs, the clock starts ticking, right? Mm-hmm. When the clock starts ticking, that means bad guys are getting away. Evidence is being misplaced or lost. Um, so what we want to do is we want to get information as quickly as we can to detectives and officers and other agencies so that they can start taking focused action. Uh, are we looking for a vehicle? Are we looking for a person? Are we looking for another piece of evidence? Because you know, minutes start ticking, that means a car can get farther and farther away, right? Sooner we, if, if, and if we, as soon as we need to hold that car, it might lead us to a suspect. It might lead us to another piece of really important evidence. So this, I think, is kind of in alignment with that philosophy of trying to speed up that investigatory process so that we were, were able to successfully identify suspects and make arrests. And you stand by that this technology is pretty accurate in terms of the region. Does it lead you to an exact address or just a vicinity? So there's a radius. Uh, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but there's a radius of where the gunfire, uh, the, the, it'll be reported. Um, and then that's where the officers go. Um, the expectation is that the officers, you know, even if there's nobody there, so let's say it's just a shots fired call, they would park their car, they get it out of the, they would get out of their car and uh, look for evidence of gunfire. From the Savannah Police Department, Captain David Gay, and we've been talking about the technology that can detect where a gunshot originates from in real time. It's called Shot Spotter. The Atlanta Police Department will pilot this technology. We wanted to check in with the department that was already using it. So we checked in with the Savannah Police Department. Captain Gay, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Marietta City Schools recently announced the district received a new grant to the tune of $2.5 million. It's to fund resources and training toward making sure students are proficient readers by the completion of the third grade. It's a new community-wide initiative called Literacy and Justice for All. Dr. Belinda Waters Brazil is the deputy superintendent for the Marietta City Schools and has been instrumental in overseeing and planning this project. She joins me now to talk more about this initiative. Dr. Belinda Waters Brazil, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Scott. We're very excited to share this literacy initiative with you today. You know, I was looking for statistics related to the United States and literacy. And according to the National Center for Educational Statistics, 21% of adults in the U.S., that's about 43 million, fall into the illiterate or functionally illiterate category. This was pointed out, too. Two-thirds of fourth graders are reading below grade level. Dr. Brazil, this is not alarming to you as an educator. No, ma'am, it's not. Um, And those are very unfortunate statistics, but they are correct. If you look at the NAEP results in 2019, you'll see that approximately 35% of fourth graders are not reading on grade level or being grade level proficient. And that's actually what we were seeing here in Marietta City Schools as well. So we were averaging right around a third of our students in third grade reading below grade level. It's certainly been a focus for our district for a while, but with the access to this new grant that we're a part of, we were able to really shed some light on some instrumental things that we need to improve literacy in our community and our schools. What's the typical grade level when students are assessed in terms of their literacy skills? And is it in reading, writing, and and recognizing letters and sounds? Does all of that fit into when we talk about one's literacy skills? It definitely does. So that actually starts as early for us as in a pre-K environment. So basically just understanding language and sound and phonemes and that letters go together to make words. Those are all things that we start teaching at the age four. 
we actually start assessing in kindergarten students' reading ability, and we also go through some phonics awareness with letters, sounds, and, and basic sight word development. So it's really important for third grade students to be able to read on grade level and be proficient in third grade. So there is this correlation as to the benefits of early education and pre-K. Absolutely. So here in Marietta City, we offer a free pre-K for all of our four-year-old students. We're very fortunate. We started that in 2018. We've actually seen a huge benefit from that. So the number of students that we're sending to kindergarten ready for kindergarten on a kindergarten assessment readiness tool that we use has actually increased with students who attend our pre-K. You know, what's interesting is that yet in Georgia and a lot of other states, kindergarten is not mandatory. Yeah, well, um, it's not mandatory here in Georgia either. You have the requirement of age six to be enrolled in school. And certainly some parents take that option. Some parents also use private kindergarten, Mm -hmm. um, like church-based organizations or other things. However, our numbers stay pretty consistent in kindergarten. And most of our students do attend kindergarten um, before entering first grade. What does the data reveal in terms of which population, whether it's by race or ethnicity, socioeconomic status? I think I know the answer to this, but what does the research reveal in terms of those students most at risk to be part of this, when those numbers I talked about, the, the illiterate and functionally illiterate category, because there's a lot of tentacles tied to it. Absolutely. So as you can imagine, some of our biggest challenges are with our English learners. So our English language learners definitely struggle struggle coming in. Um, But I also would be remiss if I didn't say that we also see this with our Hispanic student group and our black student group. So those definitely um, categories seem to be more in the area of falling into the lower percentile of when we are looking at not being proficient at reading. Let's talk about the Literacy and Justice for Law initiative first. Is this part of a national program or are you all going to be developing your own model there at Marietta Schools? We're hoping to become a national model for literacy. So how this came about is actually with our early learning center, we started some partnership with the Atlanta Speech School and the Rollins Center, really doing some research into healthy development for reading brain. And so we've been putting some of those practices in place for our early learning center. We're seeing great results and we're kind of transitioning some things into our K through three program, as well as with like phonics programs, phonemic awareness, and then the pandemic hit, right? So you have all the research out there of students who have fallen even further behind. So we were approached from the Atlanta Speech School and the Rollins Center about this opportunity with the grant, which is distributed through the United Way to apply and actually use some of the study um, information that came out of the National Reading Panel in 2000 about implementing pedagogy and skills to help teachers really develop reading in a more systematic and systemic way. So we applied for that grant and um, it involves a partnership. So it is a lot of different partners involved in that grant opportunity. And we did receive $2.5 million to start rolling out this initiative. And it's actually a birth through grade three initiative in the Marietta City community. So this is through phases. And so you all are looking at starting from birth on up through. So when they get to that third grade level where the assessments begin that the student is ready. Absolutely. So I don't know if anyone remembers this, but I remember giving birth and going out and like taking my newborn and putting them into the car. And we spent a lot of time on how to use the car seat, right? But nobody spent a lot of time with me telling me the importance of talking to my child, reading to my child, what happens with early brain development and the things that we do. So this initiative really involves a community outreach approach. It involves hospitals, pediatricians, our workforce places, partnerships with our private preschools in the area um, and access to materials that we'll be sharing with them about what we need to tell people about healthy brain development starting from birth and the importance all the way up through grade three. But those populations that we just talked about, those student populations who were at risk to fall into that illiterate or functionally illiterate category, you all are going to need to rely on community partnerships to help reach those students who are most at risk. Is that what you're saying as well? 
Yes, absolutely. So um, we actually are in the process of just hiring a coordinator who's going to work between workplaces and community organizations reaching out to start letting parents know. Some parents don't know that we offer free uh, four-year-old pre-K here in Marietta City. And we both know the socioeconomic domino effect that occurs for those who can't read or read at a very low level. We know how it can be tied to poverty, um, impact access to health care, uh, employment, just to name a few. How do you see how do you see this literacy and justice for all initiative as a beginning to the path to help eliminate some of those disparities and, and barriers that I just talked about? Certainly, um, this things that we've tracked with research. So students who are not reading on grade level by third grade definitely tend to be students who do not go on to graduate. There are also students who tend to possibly drop out of school. And so we recognize that it's a fundamental right for all students, regardless of your zip code or regardless of your social economic level, that it's a fundamental right for a student to be able to read. And then when it comes to student assessment and all of this, what metrics do you all use for that? Is it just something as simple as giving the student a reading test? Yeah, I wish it was that simple, right? So actually teaching a student to read is one of the most difficult things because there's a lot that goes into it. So certainly there are assessments and you reference some, right? The national references on its percentages. And we have milestones that we give here in the state of Georgia. However, schools go beyond that. So for us, we use an assessment called MAP. Um, It is given three times a year, but in addition to that here in Marietta, every 15 days in K through second and next year it will be K through three, we are assessing students on information that we just taught. So as early as kindergarten, it's letter recognition, it's sound recognition. Any student who's falling behind in every 15 days, we do a remediation cycle to make sure that those skills are retaught. We don't have time for the gap to get any wider. And what we have to do is be good stewards of that money, right? So we're also working with outside evaluators. We have contracted with the University of Georgia who will be conducting qualitative and quantitative research on the actual implementation of this program, the execution of the program, and the success quantitatively with students being able to improve readings. This Literacy and Justice for All initiative, as you mentioned and we talked about, is in phases. So has it it already started? When does it begin? It has already started. So the official kickoff is supposed to be in July. However, um, we right now are putting our principals and our district leaders through 30 hours of intense training on the development of the science of reading and developing healthy brains. And what does that look like in classrooms? So um, that actually will be completed on June 10th. They will have completed their 30 hours. Starting in June, all of our teachers, K through three, and any teacher who works with groups of students, so English language learners, students who are in the lower 30th percentile, EIP teachers, speech language pathologists, they will start their training on Deb Glazer's national model of the top 10 tools, which actually is the pedagogy on how you teach healthy structured literacy to students. So it's kind of a rollout model. And then our big kickoff for teachers is July 27th and 28th, where we'll actually bring in the national presenters and they will be working with our teachers. As we wrap up, I wanna get your thoughts on this because throughout this pandemic and when it comes to education, and we've been hearing so much about how much the achievement gap was going to widen due to the pandemic. What do you hope comes out of what lessons are learned through this pandemic as it relates to education? There are a lot of lessons learned, right? So we learned one quickly that teachers never knew that they could teach virtually. And so that was a lesson we had to learn very quickly. But I think one of the biggest things is that you have to have equity. If you do not have access, then that means your learning stops. So your district has to really focus on how do you provide equity for all students. So I referenced earlier, that was huge for us. So we made sure right away, any student who did not have a laptop or who did not have a hotspot was provided that. We also deployed buses into areas to make like community hotspots, because if we didn't have that, those students couldn't have access to any of their learning. So I think moving forward, districts have to kind of keep in the forefront of their mind is how do you level the playing field for all students so that they have equal access to education? 
just in, in the midst of a pandemic or any situation, right? Resources and all of that. Are you all doing some different assessments as well for when the kids come back? So actually, we are running full summer school this summer, K through 12. We've also provided, we're doing that in person and virtually. We've also provided our parents with additional resources, online resources that we've purchased. So parents who have some Zoom fatigue, right, and they don't want to do online or they're going to be doing something else, they're able to have access to a program through Ed Navigator called Camp Kinda. We're really trying to throw out there as many resources as that we can. And then also what we're doing the first several weeks of school is we've been working with every single one of our schools to identify where they may not have gotten through all the content so that we can offer some remediation sessions um, to catch kids up or even offering things on Fridays, Saturdays, um, you know, putting every opportunity out there to try to close those gaps. Dr. Belinda Walters-Brazil, the Deputy Superintendent of the Marietta City Schools, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much. It was an honor and just a great privilege to be able to share our story. And hopefully you'll follow up and see where we are in our journey. We definitely will. Thank you so much. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. When using the word creative as an adjective, it means this, relating to or involving the imagination or original ideas, especially in the production of an artistic work. That sounds pretty cool. I can't wait to ask my next guest, Tim Fielder, how he defines creative. We first spoke with Tim Fielder back in 2018. He's an award-winning illustrator, concept designer, cartoonist, and animator. And at the time when Tim joined us, we were talking about his latest exhibit at the time, Black Metropolis, 30 Years of Afrofuturism, Comics, Music, Animation, Decapitated Chickens, Heroes, Villains, and Negroes. That was the name of the exhibit, which was on display at the Hammonds House Museum. Well, Tim Fielder is back with a new graphic novel that is out of this world, maybe. It's titled Infinitum, an Afrofuturist tale. Tim Fielder, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Rose, for having me. I'm glad to be back. Okay, I have to keep my word. How do you define creative? Ooh, uh, I define creative as the innate ability to manufacture things to transform one matter to another form of matter. And that can be both destructive or constructive. And that is what creativity, that's the essence of what creativity is. Now, Merriam-Webster doesn't have that definition, but I like yours. (laughs) (laughs) So now let's go back a bit. What's your earliest memory of using that creative thread that you just talked about and putting images to either paper or canvas? I, God, you're the first person to ever ask me that question. I remember, I think I was, I, I couldn't have been any older than three. And I remember drawing on white, you know, the school paper with the mm-hmm. lines on it. Mm-hmm. And I just remember because all my siblings did that. And I just remember drawing. And I, I, you're the first person to ever ask me that question. That is the first memory I have of creating visual art and I think I was drawing with crayon yeah I it's the first time anyone's ever asked me that that is my first artistic memory and I, sometimes I wonder is that my imagination but I think it actually happened and so Tim let's define Afrofuturism through your lens for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term how do you define it I'll give you two quick answers the meta answer and the micro answer, the meta answer, the macro answer, and the micro answer. The macro answer is anytime you take Afrocentric modalities, and that is fused with technology, speculative thought, it could both be fiction and nonfiction. And when those things, the collision that results from that creativity is Afrofuturism. It can be a form of thought. It can be a form of art. It can be a form of exercising one's political thought. It could also be a form of liberating oneself from oppression. That is the 
macro or the uh, sense of Afrofuturism. For me on the micro level, Black people in spaceships. That is what <laughs> Afrofuturism is for me. And the concept, depending on whom you ask, I'm not trying to start anything, but many in your creative space point to sci-fi authors such as the brilliant and incredible Octavia Butler. But I want to add another word, visual Afrofuturism. Ah. There's a difference. Yes, no, maybe. Rose, shut up. Stop talking. uh, Wow. You're the first person to interview me to actually ask what visual Afrofuturism is. Well, what are these folks asking you, Tim? They're they're (laughs) asking me about Afrofuturism (laughs) as a general concept. And I'll bring up visual Afrofuturism, but you're the first to actually utter the words that I can think of what is visual Afrofuturism. So you're on fire today, Rose. Okay, so uh, (laughs) visual Afrofuturism is that modality that I was speaking of with Afrofuturism, but there's a visual component to it. In the case of what I do as a visual Afrofuturism, since my field is sequential art, otherwise known as comic books, funny books. I take my visual Afrofuturism and I put it within a written, a a fusion of a written and visual narrative fused together, told within comic panels. So let's get into Infinitum. I don't want to give too much away, but if you were voicing the trailer for this as if it was a movie, what would you say? Well, primary narrator would be James Earl Jones, or obviously my homeboy, Morgan Freeman. So Mr. Freeman, if you're listening, you're from Tunica or uh, from around, I'm from Clarksdale. Very soon, hopefully, uh, we'll be calling you. So yes, Morgan Freeman would be the voice. And what would the great Morgan Freeman say? Uh, The statement that I said to my editor at the end of our final editing session for Infinitum, she was asking why Oba, why does he suffer? And I said, we are not meant to live forever. We are meant to decay and rot, providing sustenance for those who come after. And so when did the concept for Infinitum begin to stir inside of you? It came around formally in the early 2000s. I was walking to Magic Johnson's theaters in Harlem with my brother, Boston, who is also my manager. Uh, with his uh, company, Herbalt Media. And we were talking, I was telling him about this story about this black guy who can't die, right? Uh, Because as an African-American, you're an African-American, people of color, all we are raised seeing ourselves be destroyed, uh, disappeared, we tend to die, and if we don't die, we're always secondary characters. And that is something that affected me from a, a very young age, seeing movies like Night of the Living Dead. And so Infinitum was created in that sense in the early 2000s. Uh, but by the time we came around to 2016, when we last talked around that period, uh, the New York Times had asked me to do a story, and this was one of the stories that I pitched and of course they passed on it, but it resonated with me to such an extent that I kept going like an insane person and 280 something odd fully digitally painted pages later, we have Infinitum, the story you have in front of you. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with illustrator, concept designer, cartoonist and animator, Tim Fielder. And we're talking about his latest graphic novel Infinitum and Afrofuturist Tale. So let's take our listeners through the time and the space, and the environment of Infinitum. Infinitum features a character by the name of Aja Oba, who mm-hmm. is an ancient African warlord, very much in the vein of the Charles Saunders uh, uh, stories, Emeril. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does a horrible thing in a state of self, he and his wife in a state of self-preservation, but he does it to the wrong person. And that person, in effect, curses him with the gift of immortality. And he is forced to live out his days seeing kingdoms rise and fall and f- families and friends rise and fall. But it, he lives so long that it moves beyond even the issue of race. So I wanted to deal with a story 
that would use the quite common trope of immortality. You see it in film, you see it in books, you see it in musicals, you see a character who lives through time. But I wanted to show this character evolve through a speculative time period towards the end of time, showing us live, fail, succeed, fall and rise in all of these different speculative scenarios, galactic war, colonization, the Atlantic slave trade, you know, barbarian Robert E. Howard type stuff. I wanted mm -hmm. to do all of that to show men and women, but specifically this character in that situation. So graphic novels are so compelling, right? Because it's, it's more than just words, you know, it's more than just narrative, Tim Fielder. By the way, the illustrations for Infinitum are just dazzling. And so as we know, when writing, authors are developing characters, storylines, you know, there are those essential parts of a novel. But when it's a graphic novel, Tim, do the images become vivid as you're writing the story? Or do you first illustrate your characters or create the panels? Wow. I'm trying to be real cerebral. You realize uh, uh, well, yeah, but see, in the effort to be cerebral, you're <laughs> forcing me. No, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. You're forcing me to answer in a much more nuanced way. Is that good or bad? That's actually very good because there's sometimes this work can get so close to you. You're not forced to dig a little bit deeper in your answers. Now, I could have just said, Tim, which comes first, the words or the Exactly. <laughs> That's normally what I get. I'm serious. That is normally what I get. That is normally what I what I get. But what you're asking me, it's like it's it, and I've said this part before my process. I have learned to accept that it's iterative, hmm. meaning that sometimes words will come, mm -hmm. sometimes pictures will come. But I will always, always this is seems to at the time, particularly when working on this book, it seemed to be never ending that I was always having to circle around to add more detail. This is both to the words and to the pictures. And with the images, because I come from a family of filmmakers, you know, everybody's a filmmaker, except for me, or at least not for much longer, we'll go into that. Uh, that is the type of thing that uh, I wanted a cinematic view, particularly with some of the characters. It, it, there's so much dramatic opportunity in the visual narrative and that's the nature of graphic novels, where it's that dance between words and pictures mm -hmm. that um, I was always compelled. And it hurt to do it, by the way. I felt like my arms were about to fall off towards the end. Uh, there's always the need to always engage dramatic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you can do that very powerful uh, in a powerful way with, with images. Tim, when you type in... And it's so easy to hit control all, delete, you know, when you're just working on a novel, just the words. But I'm curious, because as the illustrator, too, you've created these wonderful images in different panels. So it's not so easy, or is it, to just erase it all because it, it doesn't fit? Do you go through that at all? Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, and, and sometimes there was heavy pushback on it. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, when you're told, Hey, look, there needs to be more story here. You know, no one wants to hear that, particularly if it's put to you in a blunt way, mm -hmm. but if you're a pro, you do the job anyway. And that's what I had to do. And there were times, particularly after I had submitted the first manuscript mm -hmm. in November of 2019, by March of 2019, after that, that editing, the book probably grew in pages about 30, 30 pages. And each page was a lift. And I'm curious, how do you rate Infinitum against your other works, your other graphic novels? Or do you? Oh, wow. Oh, Rose, what's going on? Uh, I had some coffee <laughs> this morning and uh, I had some applesauce. You know, this, it must I be love the magic. All my babies equally. However, I am not blind to the historic nature of the book. It is the first 
uh, Afrofuturist graphic novel from a big five, big five publisher. It is the mm -hmm. first. And it features an original storyline that is both an advantage and a disadvantage. The disadvantage being, I'm Tim Fielder. Hey, how you guys doing? I'm just introducing myself to the public. The advantage is, hey guys, I'm Tim Fielder, introducing myself to the public. So I am effectively creating uh, in my own way, a market for the Afrofuturist graphic novel, the mainstream Afrofuturist graphic novel epic. Uh, and with that, uh, the work required is daily. It is like taking a mountain. Every you must do interviews, you must, you know, I, I literally just before I met with you, I was talking with the uh, American Library Association graphic novel roundtable, graphics novel roundtable. And we were discussing that I'll be participating in just a few weeks and what I could bring to the table, what during the event, but also what I could do to enhance the experience for librarians. Mm -hmm. That is just part, that's the job. Do you read reviews? Oh, wow. I do. I didn't think I would, but I do. I, I'm happy to say that the reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, but even the ones that are not quote unquote so positive are generally very insightful. And I hope those will make me a better, better artist. When we spoke in 2018, you told me how important it was for kids to see creatives like you in this space that hasn't always been diverse or this space that hasn't always highlighted diverse creatives? Well, here's what I found out in that time. Because the gates really kind of just open for a lot of black speculative fiction. I mean, now we have them and Watchmen and Black Panther, and this is now three, two, three years beyond that. What's happened is I found out that it was not just important that kids saw my work, but actual adult adults as well. My colleagues need to see this because they need to see that it's possible. And uh, I did not, I wasn't aware that my work was, was potentially that important, but I respect it now. I respect that, that, that place. I respect it. And how much of that little Tim Fielder you told me about when this conversation started is still inside of you? You know, I thought for a while that he had gone away, but I'm on Terry Rose, I'm having a ball. Yeah. It's exhausting. I'm having a ball. I got to just make sure my gray beard is trimmed a little bit neater, <laughs> but I'm having a ball because I am effectively living a dream that I had kind of put away mm -hmm. and I am living a dream. It, it is so bizarre. And it's just, I'm on NPR talking about my stuff, like not me doing someone else's stuff, but my stuff. That's, that's the dream. Now, will Infinitum be part of a series, perhaps? Might we see it in animation? Do you mean a book series or a film series? It could be all of the above, Tim. Uh, I can say that there has been discussions internally uh, uh, with me and my management about extending Infinitum into another publication. I do have that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I won't go into it because it's early days yet. But film streaming, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Been in conversations now for at least two months. So we will see. But I can't go no further than that. Well, whatever is next, we'll all be waiting Illustrator, concept designer, cartoonist, animator, Tim Fielder, back with a new graphic novel. It's titled Infinitum, an Afrofuturist tale. Tim, as always, good conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck to you. Come back and talk to us again with the next project. Rose, thank you so much. You've always been uh, gracious to me, and I hope I can be just as gracious for you. And we have a surprise, Tim. You have graciously agreed to autograph a copy of Infinitum for one lucky WABE Closer Look listener now. Should we give them a question? Yeah, I want them to ask me if I was going to draw a spaceship for them, 
what would they need the spaceship to be able to do? And I will draw that spaceship inside this book. So here's a question. If Tim Fielder were to draw you a spaceship, folks, what would you need for that spaceship to do? Email me, rose at wabe.org. Tim will select the one that is the most creative or imaginative. I guess that's the right way to put that. And uh, one lucky person will get an autographed copy of the graphic novel, Infinitum, an Afrofuturist tale. Tim, thank you so much for doing it. That's all right. Take care. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.